Brothers and sisters, I'm Pastor Murphy. We welcome you to the worship experience of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church. It's our joy that you have joined us on this Lord's Day, and it certainly is our prayer that the Word of God instructs you and empowers you, and that the worship by way of singing and celebration blesses you with inspiration as you get yourself prepared to meet the challenges of a coming week. Be blessed, sit back, embrace, soak up what God has for you today. We'll look forward to seeing you again in the name of the Lord. Amen. Go. 
Welcome to the announcements for the activities here at Greater Little Zion for the week of September 17th, along with other locally scheduled events. As a reminder, a schedule of the recurring online meetings and other community activities can be found on the GLZBC website. Please know that you're always welcome to log on, join in, or get additional information. The Christian Education Ministry invites you to participate in the Adult Sunday School where the study for this quarter focuses on celebrating God and addresses acts of worship and praise that celebrate both God's divine attributes and God's actions on behalf of the whole created order. These lessons are led by Zion's own dynamic teachers as they bring forth in-depth understanding of the scriptures and foster an environment for you to openly share in the discussions. Each lesson is recorded and available for viewing later on the GLZBC website. Sister Lakita Jones is the point of contact, and you're welcome to join in each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and stay for our virtual worship service at 10 o'clock a.m. The Youth and Young Adult Sunday School is held each Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and it's open to all youth and young adults. Sister Tara McRae is the point of contact and the Zoom link is provided in the weekly emails. The Greater Little Zion Prayer Warriors meet each Wednesday at 6 p.m. and offer intercessory prayers and give fervent praise and thanksgiving for God's faithfulness. If you have a specific prayer request, please contact your deacon or the admin office. Deacon Anthony Bazemore and Deacon Calvin Parsons Sr. are the points of contact. Adult Bible study is held each Wednesday at 7.30, where the highly interactive discussions continue to address how we as a congregation can improve our church membership through the development of authentic relations. Check Amazon or other literary websites if you would like to purchase a copy of the discussion book. It is not too late to join in these discussions, even if you haven't purchased the book. We would like to send a big shout out of gratitude and appreciation to Deacon Joanne Johnson O'Neill, who has been the faithful facilitator of this dynamic study for the past six weeks. Thank you, Deacon O'Neill. Pastor Murphy will lead the discussion starting next Wednesday, and you are invited to join in. If you haven't donated a $25 Visa gift card to support the Evangelism and Missions Ministry in their endeavor to provide extra holiday blessings to families in need, please prayerfully consider doing so. The gift cards will be given in conjunction with the ministry's December drive-through food distribution. Please share the email that you received with your family, friends, co-workers, and others who might be willing to give towards this cause. 
The ministry is accepting the $25 gift cards from now through December 11th. You can either mail them to the church or deliver them to the admin office on Wednesdays of each week. Deacon Nolan Crockett, Sister Kathleen Crockett, and Deacon Anthony Baysmore are the points of contact. For the month of September, the Family Ministry's prayer focus is on restoration of the family. You are invited to join them in offering prayers throughout the month for families to be rejuvenated and recharged and to continue seeking the Lord's direction in their lives. Calling all women of Zion, in lieu of our monthly women's ministry meeting and gathering, you are invited to join us for a Priscilla Shearer simulcast titled Going Beyond on September the 25th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. There is no cost to you. The women's ministry will pay for each woman of Zion who would like to attend. However, you must express your interest in attending by tomorrow, Monday, September the 20th, and email or call Sister Mary Great Pius. Her contact information can be found in a recent email with information on this simulcast. The Prince Williams County Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated is hosting an HBCU virtual college fair on October 16th from 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you or someone you know is interested in attending this virtual session, please check your Zion email for the registration link or the QR code to reserve your place. The Young People's Ministry of the Northern Virginia Baptist Association Incorporated invites you and your family to participate in a series of town hall conversations on stress and anxiety and the impact of recent events on the spiritual and mental health of individuals, our families, churches, and communities. The first of this series will be held on Saturday, October 2nd, from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Zoom information would be in a follow-up email. For additional church information, please visit the website at glzbc.org. Thank you and have a blessed week.
Welcome this morning, my brothers and sisters. Get your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 13 and 14. There were some additional nuggets that I discovered upon further examination, and we want to share those with you. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. Reading from the New Living Translation, Here is what it says. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Again, this Sunday, we want to preach from the subject, Don't Lose Your Choice to Believe, Part 2. Don't Lose Your Choice to Believe, Part 2. Imagine how this man responded to those who diagnosed his new condition with skepticism who believe that this man is now living under some strange illusion that he has been healed. Besides, no one in the town had ever been healed of leprosy because it is believed there was never a cure. The disease seemed to enter into remission from time to time for persons, but yet its end result is always the same. Basically, it is known as a death sentence. Those of his immediate family and friends would no doubt have celebrated his healing knowing the agony of his past. He would like to have believed that their joy would have been audible and demonstrative because they were now witnesses of his new body, a body that is whole in its healing, a body that is witnessing the nerve endings being restored, a body in which his damaged fingers, toes, nose, and disfigurations have all been made whole by a simple touch of Jesus the Christ. The skeptic no doubt would nor ever have accepted the fact that a a simple touch by Jesus healed this man's body. They would not believe it. They refused to believe it. They had never witnessed such a deliverance from the sentence of death to life and would not allow themselves to start believing now. But the leopard, the leopard himself, had some definite answers for his skeptics and those who would be critical. I believe that he would have refused to let their criticism or their skepticism altered or destroy what he knew for certain. He knew several things for certain that obviously they did not know, nor did they ever want to know. A couple of things. Number one, he knew for certain that he got an answer from Jesus. He got an answer from Jesus. When Jesus reached out and touched him saying, I am willing, be healed, be cleansed, the man had a definite confession Believed it, spoke it, and now I think he declares to everyone, whatever skepticism that persons hold, 
it's worth me listening to their skepticism because I know for certain when I asked, when I declared unto Jesus that he could change my life, he answered me. He answered me not only by touching me, but he answered me also by divinely healing me. He said also, I not only got an answer from Jesus, but I got assurance from Jesus. When you read the story, it says, upon Jesus touched, instantly the leprosy disappeared. There was no doubt in the man's mind anymore because he had clear evidence that his body was being healed. He could see the evidence of his fingers coming back now with feeling and his toes and his nose and his whole entire body now transforming, listening to the audible confession that the man made to Jesus change his entire life. Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Gave that man evidence that he could not deny himself. He would tell his critics, you don't know like I know what the Lord has done for me. Now you think about this story, it sort of falls in the same line that you and I can testify about today. Critics may not believe when we begin to testify how God done some things, worked some things out for us, how God opened some doors and made some ways out of no way and provided for us, did the impossible, but yet they don't know like you and I know what the Lord has done for us. They may deny him because they can't believe that the miraculous has taken place, but I'm a living witness, you're a living witness this morning, a living testimony of the touch that Jesus can do when you believe him by faith. So the man received without question an answer from Jesus the man got an assurance from Jesus, but then the man got affirmative action from Jesus. He experienced the authority of Jesus to solve his problem. Jesus deliberately, argues the text, stretched out his hand and touched the man. Amazingly, when you think about that, Jesus bypassed natural laws which enable him to do the miraculous. If you want to think about that even deeper, watch how Jesus operates. He bypasses natural laws, whereas we'd have to wait for those laws to play themselves out in order to gather a conclusion. But Jesus, because of who he is, administers affirmative action which suggests that he has the power to right now change a situation. Remember when there was a stormy sea and the disciples were out on the boat with Jesus and the sea began to rise to a point where it disturbed the disciples while Jesus was in the hall sleeping? And what did he do? He defiled the natural laws. He went totally against it around it. Whether the disciples have to wait for the storm to play out the Bible says that Jesus stood up on that storm, on that boat, and looked at that storm and declared, peace be still, and the waves bow down to the command of his words. 
he visits the grave of a dear friend by the name of Lazarus. Everyone else around had concluded that Lazarus is dead. We will not see him again until the great resurrection. But Jesus goes to the tomb, stands there, defies the norm, calls the man by name, and then tells him, come out from the grave. Out comes Lazarus in grave clothes in which Jesus tells them, loose him and let him go. He defies the norm. He allows himself to utilize the miraculous to overturn the natural. Remember the man of Mark chapter 5? That man who's called a demoniac. And when Jesus meets him, says the text, demons recognize who this authority is. They say that we know that you are Jesus, the son of God. Whatever you do, don't destroy us. And Jesus looks back at the man speaking to the demons in him and says, come out of him, you defiled spirit, you evil spirit. Jesus walks around the natural process of being diagnosed by a physician because he's the chief physician and calls the man condition to be changed because Jesus speaks with both authority to provide affirmative action. Both this man and Jesus reminds us that you and I have to use our voice. We have to verbalize our choice to believe. There is something about verbalizing it that does something for our own psyche in hearing what we are declaring. And the man, remember, he wanted both healing and cleansing. He wanted internal cleansing. You can heal me. He wanted external uh, healing, external wholeness. You can clean me, says Luke 5, verse 12, clause C. But when you read this story, you're summons to ask a couple of questions. What, what triggered hope in the mind of this man? Something pivoted both in his mental and in his emotional will to believe that if Jesus is willing, he could change his course of life. The man's action reminds me of a quote that I remember reading by Mark Twain in which he says, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day you find out why. Those are the two most important days. Why is that? Because I think that the man had something in his own spirit that remind him of familiar words that caused him to say to himself, I've got to be here on earth for more than just this sickness. There has to be more purpose in my life than what I'm experiencing right now. I'm not here to be abused. I'm not here to be an addict. I'm not here to be homeless. I'm not here to be jobless. I'm not here to be penniless. I'm not here to be spiritually bankrupt. I've got skills. I've been given a brain. I've got a calling. And that's the man crying out not only of himself, but likewise speaking to you and I in a modern context that you were not meant to be 
in the perplexed space that you are in, where your life is not fruitful, where you're not walking in the abundance, where you're not walking in power. Most importantly, you're not walking in purpose, but you keep remaining in the space of pain. And the man is arguing in himself, and he got it out, and he's arguing now to us, you were not meant to live this way. So what did he do? He replaced his wishbone with a backbone and made his way to Jesus. And that's what I want to declare to you right now. Stop wishing you would be better. Stop wishing your relationships would be better. Stop wishing your life would make a change. Stop wishing things would work out better for you. And start making things happen. Straighten yourself up. Put your backbone in place and cause yourself to recognize it will change when I make the effort to see change take place. He refused to lose his choice to believe that Jesus is able. That's the mentality that's the attitude I want to suggest that you have to take this morning. But I want you to further consider not only those questions, but consider the obstacles, the impediments that the man had to work through. He had to witness and get over in, over, in order to get to Jesus to experience this transformation that he found himself in. The first thing is, the first obstacle is self-defeat talk with demonic influence. Self-defeat talk with demonic influence. Imagine, if you will, the man listening to himself because Satan is working on his conscience to speak other than victory. Saying to the man, do you really believe that you can be healed of leprosy? Don't you know this haven't happened to anyone else in town? Don't you know that someone like Jesus is just like other religious charlatans? There is nothing authentic. There is nothing real. He can make a lot of promises but can't keep them. Can you hear the man telling, having to have to fight the mindset in his own uh, mind context, saying to him, you are nothing more than a generational curse. You are nothing more than generational leprosy. Your family is a composition of alcoholics, a composition of drug addicts, a composition of aimless people, a composition of deadbeat fathers, and a composition of promiscuous mothers, a composition of jobless, aimless, purposeless creatures. That's the kind of mentality he may have had to fight against. It's the same thing that you may be fighting against. You know, you've discovered now that there's more to your life than what it is, but you're struggling with these self-defeat talks that are being influenced by demons. And I want you to take the posture that this man did. He made a decision that even though that is being spoken in his mind, the man's decision was to go to Jesus and get his situation changed. And that highly suggested that he decided to choose to believe in Jesus and healing and to also inform himself just because all of those negative characteristics happen to others, particularly in his family, does not mean it has to happen to him. It doesn't mean it has to be his conclusion. Self-defeat 
you will have to overcome when you're trying to get to the space of victory. And here's the man trying to tell us I had to fight it. But not only self-defeat talk, but he had to handle public talk. Public talk because he knew other people were talking. The disease itself created its own rhetoric. People talking about his isolation, his segregation, his discrimination, his marginalization. Just because of who he is, he's considered to be an outcast, having to ever announce that he's unclean, unclean. The talk of him listening as he moved through town by others who would highly suggest that he has the nerve to be in public, the talk of him putting other people at risk because he's coming into town, he's there trying to get to Jesus to save himself. And then the talk he had to listen to of the stigma, enforcing the stigma that's associated with being a leopard. The rumor mill circulated with precision about who the man was. Public talk, what people say, many times having absolutely no basis for their criticism or accusations, but yet he had to endure it. Public talk. And then the man had to probably endure religious talk. Religious talk. Religious talk that asked the question from the religious officials, why are you fighting the will of God? Why are you not embracing that God has judged you for some sin in your life? Why do you not understand that what's happening to you is the judgment of God? What would make you think that a touch from Jesus would actually change or alter your position. Remember, these religious talkers are declaring that he's not following traditional protocol. He's not following protocol by staying in the box, coming to us as the priests, seeking religious consultation. Instead, he goes to this itinerant preacher who has a reputation of opening blinded eyes and unstopping deaf ears. He has a reputation of being able, <coughs> excuse me, of being able to change a person's life. And in this instance, by a mere touch, and he takes that route and doesn't take the route of coming to the religious officials. What got me in this whole episode of religious talk was listening to what Jesus tells the man after he heals him. Listen to verse 14 again. Listen to what it says. Now go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Now remember, it's the religious community 
that renders the most harsh judgment on the man, the most harsh of shame on the man, yet it's that very community back to the priest in which Jesus requires the man to go to show himself, be examined by them, and to testify to them. Be a witness that your healing can be validated after divine healing. When you read that, verse 14, that's a dichotomy. Something's wrong there. It's opposite of what's expected. I'm thinking the man probably is feeling like, why do I really need to go back or go to the officials? They're the ones who's actually being very critical of me, causing me to think that I can't be healed, and yet you want me to go back to them and be validated. Well, even though Jesus carries the power to overshadow the law, to work around, under, and above the law, yet he stays within the confinements of the law by making sure that the man follows the rules of Moses in Leviticus 14, verse 1 through 32. That's where a particular process is revealed that if you have been healed of leprosy, you have to go through this certain act of ceremonial examination in order for you to be declared cleansed and in order for you to be received back into the community. This is why Jesus tells the man, you've got to go and let the priest examine you. So even though this is a miraculous moment, Jesus says, I want those who carry out the law to further recognize that what they disbelieve is actually a reality. It's a belief that can be embraced. And that's the strange thing sometimes we have to come to understand that in context to which we want to be out of, situations in which we pray, Lord, move me out of this place. I don't want to be here. I don't like the people. And yet God leaves us there. It's because we're going to be a public testimony and they're going to be the ones who validate by way of witnessing your divine transformation. And that's what God is working. I think that's what Paul is saying when you encounter various episodes in Romans 8.28 when he says all things are working together for the good. That simply means that in the context and where you are, God may leave you there mainly because he's not only shown you that you've been divinely healed, made whole, but he also wants to use you as a living testimony to those who have their own doubts as well. Says Jesus, let the priests examine you. But then the most critical thing was that he told the man, even before that, whatever you do, don't tell anyone about what has happened to you. But I want you to go straight to the priest and let him examine you so he can declare you clean. Now, I'm probably like the man, he probably was thinking to himself, why? I already know that I'm clean. Ah. But maybe that is for those of us who are reading now the text backwards. Because there's a couple of reasons I think maybe Jesus, why Jesus told this man, go directly to the priests and tell no one anything. First reason being, the priests having heard that Jesus performed this healing, 
they would probably refuse to acknowledge it. And so rather than to have them hear it first by way of rumor, Jesus made sure that the man didn't do anything but go directly to them so that they couldn't hear it from the streets of Jerusalem, but they eyewitnessed the healing themselves. You know, there are some people who don't want you healed. They don't want you whole. They don't want you free. They don't want you in a space of victory. There are some people who would rather have you remain with a sense of dependency on them. And Jesus knew that these Pharisees had that kind of spirit in them where they wanted the people to depend on them is the reason why they're probably upset at this man that he has the nerve in his condition to go directly to Jesus through the public and yet he experiences divine healing by the touch of the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus knows that if they hear it, They'll think it's only a rumor. They'll think it's the work of a charlatan, and they won't believe it. So he tells them, you go straight to that priest. There's another reason. He tells the leper that also, because now as a ex-leopard, the question becomes, would he forget to go to the cleansing ceremony with the priest because of the excitement of his divine healing? Now, that's highly possible. I think it's highly possible because he is overwhelmed by the fact that what he was, he is no longer, and now he is witnessing his newness of life. His life has been turned upside down. Now he feels the joy of being free. He could very well have forgotten to go to the priest and just went on his merry way to celebrate. But remember, Jesus says, don't tell nobody nothing. Just go to the priest. So he wants to reiterate that in his mind. I don't, want, I don't mind you celebrating, but celebrate on your way to the priest. Just for your FYI, remember this is not the only episode in which Jesus heals a leper. There's another incident in which Jesus heals ten lepers. And when he heals them, though, he tells them, go on your way to the temple to show yourself to the priest. And what happens? They are healed along the way, which highly suggests that Jesus may be telling this man to do this because he wants him to recognize the value of being obedient to the direction of God. There's a third reason. The third reason why Jesus probably instructed the man to go directly to the priest is because the man may forget the immensity of what's just happened to him. This is not some small healing of a cold. This is not some small healing of a scratch. His entire life has been transformed by a miraculous touch. This is an immense, large healing. And Jesus wants to make sure that this man gets the right validation from the religious officials who otherwise would condemn him. There's another reason. The function of the law serves as a guide in the life of the believer. So Jesus is not telling the man, don't go to the temple. That would be avoiding the law. But the law is, if you have leprosy, in order to be received back in the community because you're living in a segregated colony, 
you've got to follow this particular ritual. This particular ritual which will affirm that you have been, without question, divinely healed. And when you read Leviticus 13 and 14, that ritual comes to play because, once again, obedience is the key to transformation. Then there's a fifth reason, I think. What if, or should we say it this way? Jesus saying, what I did for you in private, I want you to declare in public. Which is why I think he closes verse 14 by saying, this will be a public testimony. It was solidified that Jesus, because the people had been looking for the Messiah, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and they've been looking for the Son of God to come and deliver them from the oppression of Rome. It was solidified that this Jesus, without question, holds divine power, is a servant of God. And something that Matthew says that Luke doesn't mention and that is that in Matthew 8 and 1, this same miracle, Matthew says there are large crowds that have gathered around to witness this miracle. I think he wants him to go straight to the priest because that crowd would no doubt carry the story very quickly. And his steps from the priest to where the people were, or should I say his step from where he was to the priest and then from where the people were, is much shorter and yet not allowing that story to get out before it reaches the proper ears. Sometimes God, have you noticed when he heals you, when he works on your behalf, in your own spirit, assures you not to tell anybody anything, not to let anyone know how things worked out, until a proper time. Because pre-adventure, you don't want anybody to twist the story. So you can imagine how people would have twisted the story, how Pharisees may have changed the story if they heard this too early. Without eyewitnessing, a good way to affirm this is happening is to go to the book of Acts, chapter 4, when the crippled man is healed in chapter 3, and Peter and John, I think it is, they are, have been arrested because of what they have done in changing this man's life by lifting him. They bring him into the court, and the problem they have is the evidence. And the evidence is right there in their face. And they have their own private moment of consultation in chamber. They says, you know what? No matter what we think about these two servants of Jesus, we can't deny the evidence is right here before us. And I'm trying to tell you that what God does sometimes, he works in mysterious, powerful ways and doesn't permit you to testify at that moment how it happened. Just tell folk you've been changed. God has worked it out. And then later the proper time would come. There's an attachment to this healing process also to this declaration, and that is that there is an eight-day celebration. There's an eight-day period in which when this celebration takes place, when the priest has declared the person whole and cleansed, there's this celebration known as the purification ceremony. 
That's where the priest goes through a number of rituals by slaying animals and then taking the blood and anointing the healed leper on his right thumb and his right tip of the ear and his right big toe and his right foot. That's a way of uh, putting hands on one animal and then slaughtering the other, slaughtering the other and using the blood and then releasing the other. Freedom being transformed and yet being free from the bondage of sin. So what are the lessons that this leper in this moment of Jesus telling him, go show the priest, what, what's Jesus, what's the leper trying to tell us in the process? Well, number one, I think in doing that, he says to them, listen, no matter what you believe, I know for certain I have experienced released from the perception of leprosy. I've experienced release from the perception of leprosy. Remember, his entire life as a leopard was considered to be lost. His life is considered to have no purpose. It is believed that his sin has caused this consequence in his life. It's the judge of some act that he has done. And in this divine healing, it is God who has made him so excited that the last person that he wants to see is the priest, yet that's the first person, Jesus says, I want you to see. I want them to see that you whom they thought was lost and doomed has now been set free, released from all of the perception and stigma of leprosy. And that's what God desires to do in your life, no matter what condition you are. He wants to set you free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It's Jesus in the earlier fourth chapter of Luke that tells us in verse 18 and 19 that a part of his mission, in fact, his ultimate mission was to come and release those who are held in captive he doesn't want you to be that way. He doesn't want you to be in an abusive context. He doesn't want you to be in a situation where you are constantly under pain and sorrow. He wants you to be released. In the words that Jesus spoke of Lazarus, loose him and let him go. Today, that's the master's words for your life. He wants to loose you, release you. And get you out of that situation that you're in. God will do it if you don't lose your choice to believe. He will do it. And the man says, I'm happy. I'm excited because I've been released. But he says, I'm also excited because I am now relieved. I've experienced some relief. I've experienced relief from the pain of leprosy. Remember, leprosy is a daily mental and emotional roller coaster. Every day, he's experiencing the decaying of his body. Now, keep in mind, I told you earlier that leprosy is a disease that kills the nervous system. And so, although he is a leopard, he really doesn't feel pain. He just witnesses pain. He watches his body decay and fall to pieces. 
And now, because he's been changed, healed, he gets to celebrate that he no longer has that kind of pain, but instead he is free because he has been released and now he feels the relief of not having that pain in his life anymore. Find you some people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they can share with you what a joy it is to be released and to feel relief from the agony of their former life. It could have been their past behaviors, past predicaments, past situations where they feel so defeated. And it is as if they could never escape the stigma of yesterday. But in Jesus, they found that freedom. They found that relief. That's what the man is proclaiming and going to make clear to the priest. He found release. He is now relieved. And he's shouting because he has been restored. He's been restored for the purpose of progress in life. See, the priest's role was twofold. Number one, in declaring him healed, he restores him back to the community of people. Remember, as a leper, he lived as an outcast, distant from everyone else, particularly those whom he loved. But when he's declared clean, he can now go back home and embrace the arms of his wife, of his children, of his relatives, of friends. And I want you to know that even if you are a recovering uh, individual, from whether it's drug addiction or alcohol, it is God's using of those around you to let them know that he can restore you. And in their embracing of you, that enables you to witness the joy of restoration. Remember the language of David in Psalm 23? He restoreth my soul and then leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what God wants to do for you today. Restore what has been lost. Friendships, loved ones, companionship, leprosy robbed a person of much of that. But now this man is declaring, I got it all back. I got it all back because of a touch from the master. He helped my life to be transformed. There are some people who can testify whether they came through their addiction or they came through their challenge. Whatever it was, they've now been set free. Their life has been restored. They've got a new perspective to see things. So the priests would declare them clean that they can go back to the community. But also the second act was to declare them clean so they could go back to church. They can likewise go back and they can be restored to the religious prerogatives in temple worship. Because they were lepers, they were not permitted to be a part of the worship experience because of its contagiousness, thought to be contagiousness. Once again, there's this interesting parallel that reminds us of the pandemic. See, when you're a leper, you live in a pandemic. You can't have contact with anyone else other than somebody who's just like you in the same condition. And yet the, the priest is responsible to help restore you back to church. And I want to say that's my role this morning. That's why I'm trying to share with you from this story. That's God's decision 
in the preaching of this gospel to help you be restored back to church. I don't care how far you drifted away. I don't care how bad you think you have done and you think your life is in the condition now. You can come back to church. You can come back. And be embraced with the love of God. Want to know why? Because all of us in the house of God are recovering individuals from something. We were broken persons who've been made whole. We've been cleansed. And we'll, we are walking testimonies that he's able to make it happen. So this man's testimony publicly also had an evangelistic thrust to it. There is something that you should know. Toward the end of the 17th century, there became a development in practice by Baptists as well as Methodist churches, championed by the likes of Charles Finney and the Wesley brothers and uh, even Richard Allen and many others. Um, they championed a theological perspective that was known as decision theology. Now, decision theology simply means that uh, there's a conviction that an individual must make a conscience decision to accept Christ and then to follow him. You've got to make a conscience decision to accept Christ and then to follow him. Now, we've rebranded it now. We call it being born again based off of John 3.16. Uh, we call it walking in the new life based off of 2 Corinthians 5, I think it is. Um, we call it the work of first grace. First grace meaning that by God's grace you've been changed. Ephesians 2, 8, 2, 2, 8 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. But also the second grace in working towards sanctification. But the bottom line is Lutherans and those of the Reformed tradition, they reject this decision theology because they believe that faith merely receives the gift of salvation rather than causes salvation. And those of the Baptist and Methodist tradition and many others believe that faith causes the whole idea of salvation. Now understand that decision theology has legs. It has roots in scripture. Listen to these few verses and you can hear what decision theology is trying to contend. Let's take, for example, Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that has to be a decision in your mind to call on the name of the Lord. Let's take Mark 8 and 34. Jesus says, whoever or whosoever will follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. That's a decision. You've got to decide to do that. Well, how about the words of John 3, 16? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's decision theology. Why is that important? Because that concept links deep with here the man in Luke 5 to simply tell us that the man made a conscience decision to believe that in his following of Jesus his life 
could be transformed and changed. And his life would never be the same. And from that day forward, when we read in the text, his life is brand new. You've got to make a decision. And that decision centers around everything. That's the reason why I'm trying to advocate to you. Don't lose your choice to believe. Because your decision is what's going to declare how your life moves forward. As I close, let me say this. There are times in which we rarely seek to understand the origin of hymns. Hymns are becoming less and less popular in many circles because they're becoming dominated by or overshadowed by contemporary music. But hymns are deep. They're important because of their theological roots. There is one hymn that has neither Afro nor Eurocentric origin. And in fact, I'm certain that many of you don't even know where the origin of the hymn comes from. But this one hymn has its origin out of India. It was, how should I say, attributed to a brave, martyred individual in India. Uh, some hundred and fifty plus years ago, particularly uh, after a great revival in Wales, there were those of North America who came and began to stretch out in terms of their evangelistic uh, efforts, and, and they went into various small colonies of India and began to share the gospel. Tribal context is what they were. And they came to this one particular one, and in this particular context, they met a man who managed to be converted by this American missionary. And in his conversion, his children and his wife followed along with him. Well, the tribe to which they were a part, that they were a part there was a, uh, a chief of the tribe, if you will. He became angry, the village chief. And he summons the villagers together when he found out about this man's now testimony. He called the family and the man out in front of everyone and told them that you must renounce your faith in public or face persecution. Well, the Bible says that, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the history says that the man being moved by the Holy Spirit responded to the village chief direction and made this proclamation I have decided to follow Jesus enraged at the man's response he takes the village chief takes his two sons and kills them he then looks at the man as he watches his sons there on the ground, twitching, nearing death, and says to them, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children. You're going to lose your wife as well. And what was the man's reply? Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Even further enraged with fury was the village chief, and he ordered the man's wife to be arrowed. In a moment, she joined her two sons in death. 
Now he asked the man for the last time. I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. And in the face of death, the man gives his final memorable line. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The village chief, who was written with anger and fury, who ordered the killings of this man and his family, was moved by the man's fate. He wondered to himself, why should this man, his wife and his two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land on some other continent 2,000 years ago. There must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith, and I, too, want to taste that faith. Well, the story goes on to tell us that in this spontaneity of confession, the man declared, I, too, belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd who had gathered heard this from the mouth of the chief, the whole village accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Those are the words of Nuxing. Nuxing was from this Indian village, and he died along with his wife and his children, declaring by way of decision theology I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's my word to you today. That's why I keep telling you, don't lose your choice to believe. Because your decision will determine where you will go from this day forward. Have you decided to follow Jesus? If you have, no turning back. No turning back. Lord, thank you for this moment in which we had to share in the preaching of the word. And I pray that on this day, someone, someone makes a decision to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray today, Lord, that this day has a beginning, creates a new beginning for someone from this day moving forward. That they make a decision, no turning back. But instead... Let me do as the man who was filled with leprosy. Let me go and decide in decision theology, I'm going to declare the name of Jesus. Save someone that calls on your name today, Lord. Help someone get back on course, restore them, relieve them, release them. We'll give you the glory for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer is that the word of God says something to you where today you will certainly make that decision. And today your life will start to go in a different direction. I encourage you to read the word of God. If you don't know where to start, I always encourage you to start in the Psalms. Start in Proverbs. Start reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those areas where the word is simple and most importantly it's applicable in real life experiences. 
I want to encourage you to believe that God loves you so much so that in Jesus Christ, he makes that love to be manifested. Thank you for each and every one of you who support this ministry and continue to give us your support. We pray that that will not cease, but will continue to do so, for it is our joy again to share with you in the gospel. Always remember, this is the day that God has given you. Rejoice and be glad within it. Know that God loves you, and so do I. Have a blessed, wonderful day and week in Jesus' name. Amen. Prepare your hearts and minds to come to the Lord's table as we make preparation and sharing in that sacred moment. Amen. Beloved, we have come to this moment in which in our sacred tradition we've gathered around to commemorate that meal in which our disciples shared, with our Lord shared with his disciples. On that Thursday evening in which they gathered around the table, the Bible says that he took bread and he looked unto heaven and he blessed it and then he gave it to his disciples. As we invite you to gather your elements as Jesus and his disciples did eat together in the bread, let us eat together now. Likewise, says the scripture, he took the cup, looked unto heaven, blessed it, and then gave it and shared with his disciples as they did drink together. Let us drink together. And of course, when they finished, they sung a hymn and made their way to the Mount of Olives. Let's leave this sacred moment today rejoicing that we've had a chance as a community to virtually share in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup to remind us of the sacrificial death that our Lord gave that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Have a blessed, wonderful day in the Lord. Have great expectation for the week and always know that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.